What are some of the biggest misconceptions and inconsistencies surrounding the Opportunity Zone's tax incentive? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And joining me on the program today is managing partner of Blue Cardinal Capital, Bob Richardson. Bob joins us today from his office in Buffalo, New York. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Jimmy. I'm glad to be with you. Well, glad to have you here, Bob. Excited to dive in here. So today I I wanted to discuss with you, I think you've really identified a lot of the biggest disconnects or inconsistencies with this Opportunity Zone tax credit. And so I wanted to focus our conversation around that topic. So first, I want to tackle this misconception that a lot of people have, or the, the, the misconception of the Opportunity Zone incentive being a tax credit, but, but really it's not a tax credit. So can you talk about that concept of a tax credit versus the Opportunity Zone incentive and what implications does that distinction have? Sure, that's a really important distinction. And, and like you, I hear uh, often people describe Opportunity Zone program as a tax credit, which it is not, and it's significantly different than a tax credit. A historic tax credit or a brownfield tax credit um, is an, an incentive uh, to engage in a project that actually changes the economics of the real estate transaction. It can make a project that would not otherwise be profitable, a profitable one, whereas the Opportunity Zone program is designed to minimize the tax that an investor pays on a project when it is profitable. So the key implication there is that first step is you must be able to identify an opportunity that generates a profit. And uh, if you don't generate the profit, the, the consequence, the, the opportunity to benefit for the investor is really zero. Uh, in fact, there's a bit of a cushion that you might be able to, to lose a little bit of money and still be okay in terms of, of um, getting your principal back but it's not like tax credits that really change the basic economics. So uh, that really begins to help us understand how to differentiate these 8,700 plus opportunity zones around the country and decide which ones are the most interesting as investment opportunities. Great, yeah, I think people need to consider the opportunity zone tax incentive as another tool in the in the capital raising tool bag so to speak uh, but it, it doesn't necessarily make the economics of a deal any better i think this is was your main point that 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 is correct and and so you have to have a a basic project that generates a risk adjusted return that's relevant compared to other opportunities the risk adjustment returned in the case of an opportunity zone investment is enhanced on an after-tax basis, but that requires the profit 
uh, the project to be profitable in the first place. Good. Yeah, absolutely correct there. So I want to touch upon more inconsistencies or, or misconceptions or disconnects uh, that have that have kind of cropped up as a result of this legislation and the and the pending regulations from IRS. But first, let's back up for a minute. Bob, could we get your background? I'd like to hear about your career path and how did you get to where you are today? And maybe you can tell us uh, when you first became interested in Opportunity Zone investing. Sure. So um, my career uh, began here in Buffalo, New York. I, I uh, came to work at M&T Bank Corporation. It's based here in Buffalo. And um, I was a bit of an entrepreneur in residence and started new business lines and product lines at M&T and was there for about 12 years and uh, then spent some time as a retail consultant traveling the country for various electronics retailers. And uh, in that process, I, I met a real estate investor who was building an investment platform and needed some of my banking expertise. And then I got involved in the early days of a project, a, a master plan redevelopment of a blighted community here in Buffalo, uh, which became the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus, which now employs about 17,000 people. And uh, in terms of a real estate investment program, it's probably the most expensive real estate in upstate New York uh, after the renovation of that neighborhood and, and really the consolidation of of institutional and uh, entrepreneurial ventures uh, within that district in Buffalo. So I was actively involved in investing in real estate uh, there on the medical campus and then a couple of other really large signature projects in upstate New York that we put deals together on. And in uh, 2016, I uh, went out on my own and started a, a Blue Cardinal and uh, started looking for opportunities to do the master plan redevelopments in different parts of the country. And uh, we were well on our way to a, a redevelopment in Niagara Falls that maybe we can talk about later, uh, that later happened to be identified as part of an opportunity zone. So when the legislation passed in at the end of 2017, we'd already been working on our project for well over a year. and. Uh, so the Opportunity Zone uh, benefits uh, really uh, enhanced the project and, and the performance of the project that we were already pursuing. Good. Well, thank you for providing some of that context on your career path. And yeah, I do want to ask you about that Niagara Falls project that you're working on. We'll get to that a little bit later in the program today. Let's get back to our conversation around what you referred to on the phone with me last week as unholy marriages between things that don't belong together um, or or maybe disconnects or inconsistencies maybe another way of putting it. If I counted correctly, I think we identified five or six such disconnects. Could you go through each of those for us? Sure. I, I think the first one that's really easy for, for most people to understand is the, um, the disconnect or the, or the uh, inconsistency embedded in the Opportunity Zone program around timing. So the IRS is, is well known for its uh, specificity and rigidity with respect to timing. When I say April 15th, everyone in the United States knows exactly what I'm talking about, largely because the IRS really isn't flexible about when we all decide to file our taxes. So um, that 
and the rigidity of timing in embedded in the Opportunity Zone program are really diametrically opposed in, in conflict with the way real estate development really works. And if you sit down and you talk to a municipality or you talk to a development company and you say, how many times has your project come in exactly on time in the way you thought it would? Um, you, the answer is it almost never does. It's, it's a rare occasion when a project comes in on time. And in particular, when it comes to Opportunity Zone program, a lot of the early steps in real estate development are the time-sensitive uh, steps from an Opportunity Zone perspective. And those are the ones that are often most delayed. And the, the factors that cause the delay are not really in control of the developer or a fund manager and can uh, wildly change the timing of the implementation and the timing of progress and the timing of realizing the substantial improvement test that's embedded in the Opportunity Zone program. So, and then those could those could all knock the Qualified Opportunity Fund out of compliance. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, if you're uh, the fund manager in that situation, there may not be a lot that you can do about it, and it may not be your fault at all. So. Uh, that uh, inconsistency is probably one of the most difficult elements to manage as the leader of one of these uh, initiatives. That, that is that is a really good point there. But let, let's let's continue. Let's let's move on to the uh, the second inconsistency or disconnect. Uh, you were speaking with me about typical real estate principles, how they may or may not apply in blighted communities. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. I, you know, I, again, one of those um, euphemisms that everyone understands, uh, first principle of real estate is location, 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 which is a directly in conflict with the idea that we're going to go and focus on a, a primary investment in a challenged blighted community. That wouldn't necessarily be the location that you would want to select. Um, and in fact, the Opportunity Zone Declaration, meaning identifying a particular location as an Opportunity Zone, may in fact change the economics of the real estate in that particular place. So uh, a, just a simple example of how um, the, the normal principles of, of how we find places that we want to invest and what we want to put in those places really is in conflict with the idea that we, we have artificial boundaries that are drawn by census tracts and identified by governors as opportunity zones. Um, some of the best um, options in terms of adding value to real estate is assembly. And so what happens if you have one piece of property that's in the opportunity zone and you'd like to assemble it with something that extends out two or three blocks in the other direction? That may be allowed, but it adds a level of complexity that, again, is one of those inconsistencies that's hard to determine whether or not the Opportunity Zone program is aligned to the real estate development strategy. Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's also a good point there. And then these Opportunity Zone investments, they need to flow through a new investment vehicle that was created by the legislation, a qualified opportunity fund. But the fact of the matter is, uh, there are a lot of real estate developers out there doing fund management now, and they have no experience or expertise in managing funds. 
And then on, on the other side, you have fund managers entering the space who may have fund managing experience, but they have no experience doing real estate development. So that's, that, that's our third disconnect there. If you want to expound on that topic a little bit more. Yeah, that one I find fascinating. And it, it is, um, I think, uh, a, an indication of some of the challenges of investing in blighted communities as well. Uh, starting with the the fund managers, so there are lots of great uh, private uh, capital sources in the world uh, who are very efficient, uh, very responsible, very uh, uh, deliberate about raising capital. They have great reputations, great experience, great history. And they look at an opportunity zone program and say, we are able to raise lots of capital. This is great. We can certainly figure out this real estate thing. It can't be that complicated. We're really good at, at, at this business. Um, that's uh, a particularly big challenge because not only is real estate very local, but the, the ability to succeed in a blighted community is very much dependent on your local knowledge and the local relationships and connections and understanding the the history and pitfalls and things that have been tried before, um, the interconnectivity of the, the the community that you're working in with those around it. Um, all of those factors are very hard for a fund manager who's effective at raising money to get engaged in a new place and understand. Um, for example, in our case, when we look at a new market, we typically spend a couple of years building relationships there before we even entertain a first purchase of property. So again, that timing component of the Opportunity Zone program doesn't allow for that. And so you have funds with lots of capital with no local feet on the ground or local presence and very hard to make those dots connect. On the flip side, you have the opposite problem where you have local developers who have great insight into property. They have uh, potential profit-making business ideas for what that property can produce and benefit the community, but they're not really fund managers and they don't really have a lot of experience in the kinds of things like uh, structuring of funds, compliance, reporting, investor relations, um, all of those blocking and tackling issues of being a fund manager. And they make themselves and the other parts of their business somewhat vulnerable to uh, the performance of, of this Opportunity Zone fund uh, on factors that they're not used to managing and not particularly good at controlling. And so that, that disconnect um, uh, makes for uh, really frankly, a, a potential uh, bonanza of lawsuits for mismanagement of funds. And I would say, in my opinion, even worse than uh, developers trying to, to become fund managers, there are municipalities, I understand, who've launched funds. And that, to me, seems like a recipe for all kinds of problems that would probably not be worth the benefits. Yeah, I agree with you there. I, it's, uh, it takes a lot of experience and expertise to run a fund properly, especially a fund that has the complexity that a qualified opportunity fund has in terms of its need to stay in compliance with IRS regulations, 
the timing requirements and the the capital requirements in terms of um, the the percentages that are in good assets versus bad assets. It's a it's a lot for a local real estate developer to manage. Absolutely. Our fourth inconsistency or disconnect that we identified on the phone the other day was the issue of the SEC and the fact that a lot of these qualified opportunity funds are likely going to be interpreted by the SEC as securities, um, possibly catching opportunity zone developers and fund managers uh, a little bit off guard. They may not be aware of this issue. Could could you speak about that a little bit further and, and some of the ramifications of that? Absolutely. I, I, uh, I do share that view that um, an opportunity zone fund by its definition is going to be a regulated investment instrument. And, and that has real implications for how this process works and who participates in it and, and who gets the opportunity to, to earn money from it. Um, again, factors that most developers don't understand and are, are unaware of are the limitations uh, for issuing private securities and how they are to be sold and who can make money in the process of selling them. Uh, there are other examples uh, of, in the past of, of pro- programs uh, generated by one area of the government that implicitly created securities which the SEC then later came and uh, issued enforcement actions against those programs because their expectation is that the securities law is uh, a toolkit to help understand what's proper and, and appropriate in terms of how securities are transacted. And those uh, uh, requirements, those regulations, uh, can be applied consistently as new investment products are invented, created, conceived, just like the Opportunity Zone Fund has now been conceived. So the rules for engaging with investors that apply to stocks and bonds and, and other types of real estate alternative investments can be applied to Opportunity Zone uh, funds. But What's very clear uh, from just reading uh, or or Googling Opportunity Zone funds uh, is that many people are not aware of those requirements and already are, uh, uh, at least in, in very deep into the gray area, if not overstepping their bounds in terms of how they engage and solicit investors, how they compensate the various parties involved in the investment process and so on. And I expect that at some point we're, we're going to start getting enforcement actions uh, from the SEC as a form of guidance for the industry in terms of how to interpret the overlap between Opportunity Zone funds and the SEC regulations of funds. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. It's still very much a Wild West type of atmosphere out there in terms of marketing these, these funds and, and engaging with potential investors. I agree with you. Uh, the SEC, along with NASA, did issue a um, a staff letter of uh, of I don't know if it was official guidance. I forget how they referred to it. I'll I'll be sure to link to it in the show notes for today's episode at opportunitydb.com 
slash podcast, and it does address some of these issues, at least in in broad terms. And and I agree that uh, you know at some point down the road here we we may see some more official guidance coming from them. So the fifth disconnect that we identified, and I think there's a little bit of overlap with that that third disconnect of uh, fund managers doing real estate development. But this this fifth one uh, we identified as large firms needing capacity uh, kind of rules out smaller locally run funds. And, 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 and we think you and I share this uh, thought that those smaller locally run funds are probably the very funds that are likely to have the most success with, with boots on the ground. Uh, can, you, can you speak about that disconnect a little bit? Sure. Um, and this really relates to this general idea of how real estate capital is raised uh, and how it's deployed. And, and so you have, again, large firms who have very successful infrastructure and track record and, and process, and they have minimum requirements because they have to be able to take in large amounts of money and deploy it efficiently. And uh, some of those firms, because of those requirements, actually prohibit smaller investments. They prohibit investments that are uh, specifically regional because that doesn't really align to their need to deploy lots of, of capital and, and to manage it from afar. And again, that, that uh, separation between the, the process of how money is raised in real estate and how sensitive the deployment of, of real estate investment in a, in a challenging community can become uh, really creates this um, disconnect, I guess is the best word in this particular case, because ultimately what we want these opportunity zone funds to produce is a disproportionate return based on risk return balance. And so it, in order to accomplish that, you really have to be hyper-focused on the specific transaction, the specific property that you're going to develop, or what's it going to become? How is that going to generate the kind of cash flow and or appreciation that generates a yield that's disproportionate to what an investor can produce in in the open market in any real estate investment somewhere else? The opportunity zone benefit is only material to the extent that it outproduces um, the yield of an investment that has a similar risk profile. Uh, at least on an after-tax basis. So uh, that is really very much a local process. And being able to not only comply with the requirements of the program, but to deliver the return largely depends on your understanding of that specific neighborhood, the specific property, and the specific business plan that's going to generate the return. Right. So maybe some of these larger you know, $500 million or billion dollar plus blind pool funds, um, you and I may not, may not like quite as much as the, as the smaller locally run funds. Is that correct? I, I, they, they may do just fine, but I would suspect the challenge they're going to have is producing deal flow at that level and managing it through end to end for 10 years to a point where it's successful. A lot happens in 10 years and a lot can go wrong. And being, being in a position to manage that from, 
from New York or Los Angeles um, is difficult to do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you there. Uh, one final disconnect. This is number six now for those of you counting at home. Um, most people with capital gains, we're talking about the the retail investor channel now. Most most high net worth individuals with with capital gains will use a wealth manager or a financial advisor, but those wealth management firms often don't necessarily want their clients' money to leak out of their portfolio, where they're you know typically generating a uh, management fee of maybe a hundred or one hundred and fifty basis points. They don't want that money leaking out of of their portfolio wrapper and into opportunity zone funds. And then couple that with the fact that smaller independent wealth managers, RIAs, are not typically equipped to evaluate what makes a good opportunity zone investment. That's a pretty big challenge for for raising capital then at that point. Can you discuss that challenge? And, and are you aware of any efforts to remedy that issue? Yeah, so I it, it is a very big issue because um, there's multiple layers of understanding that have to really be achieved in order to to complete a, a, and close on an investment in an opportunity zone fund. Um, first of all, you uh, as you you rightly point out um, that the high net worth individual investor who is a uh, uh, an opportunity zone investment candidate because of their capital gains is well equipped with advisors. They generally have a wealth manager, maybe a team who helps them understand different aspects of the market. Uh, they generally have a tax planning um, expertise that is directly advising them as well. That may or may not be within the same firm. So you, you know, those two parties. Um, in order to provide competent guidance to their client, need to be fully educated on the Opportunity Zone program itself and have a, a, enough of an awareness about the particular opportunity, the particular project that's being evaluated to make a contribution to that and help the client understand how it fits in their investment strategy. Um, and beyond that, there's a level of, of really discovery of what the what the value proposition is for the client and how to make them comfortable as an investor if they're not already investing in similar assets, right? So uh, just because someone has a capital gain and because they're a high net worth individual investor doesn't make them comfortable with real estate investments in general. So what we find is the most likely opportunity zone investor candidate is somebody who already invests in real estate, and they're just looking for this opportunity to enhance what they would normally be doing anyway. Good, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm with you there. I think it it does take a a special type of investor. You're absolutely right. It's not just an investor who may have capital gains. They need to be comfortable with real estate investment for the most part, especially you know, it, during this initial opportunity zone investment push that is focused mostly on real estate. Although we have seen some some business funds pop up here and there, and I think we'll continue to see more. But for but for the most part, at least early on, this is largely real estate play still. That's right. I, I think there will be other creative ways to to use the opportunity zone program to finance various other things, other strategies. 
Um, I always sort of describe that as playing the middle of the fairway versus playing the fringe. I think because of the amount of guidance and, and the, the level of the guidance that we've received from IRS so far, the safe play is to be in the middle of the fairway, and that largely leads you right back to real estate, which is a little bit more specific, more clean in terms of how it applies to the program. It is, absolutely. No disagreement uh, from me on, on that point. We're probably a few weeks away, at least, uh, maybe toward the end of the year here, 2019, in getting uh, final rulemaking from IRS. But until then, we're going to see um, a little bit of a restriction of, of capital flowing into opportunities of investments, particularly those investments that may lie outside of that middle of the fairway, as, as you put it. And one of the other biggest challenges uh, beyond the fact that we're still waiting for final regulations from the IRS is that educational component, being able to educate the decision makers with capital gains, whether that's the individual investor or their advisors or their team of advisors, their accountants or wealth managers. What have you done in that regard to help bring individual investors and their advisors up to speed? We, we have a really um, complete campaign in that regard. I think it's part of our more general outreach to investors. Um, it gives us an opportunity to um, first engage with uh, municipal partners. Um, again, uh, one of those uh, factors that, that influences your success in the Opportunity Zone program is your ability to comply with the timing. And so the municipal partner in the project, that the city itself, is a big key to making sure that you can stay on track to the extent that they can commit and follow through on, on timing objectives of the project, it really becomes a major factor in de-risking the project. So we, we have started our education with working on educating municipalities about what they can do to uh, prepare themselves to be successful as an Opportunity Zone uh, target and an Opportunity Zone candidate. And that opens the door to talk about all the various things that can happen that might challenge the success of the project. And that sort of knowledge base becomes really relevant in terms of engaging with the advisor community, whether that's the financial advisor or the, or the tax advisor, who has heard about, familiar with, maybe been to a couple of Opportunity Zone con uh, conferences, maybe listens to your podcast. but. Um, there's a, a, an applied layer of, of this that is really in the weeds and, and helping them kind of understand how to evaluate particular investment funds and talk to their client about the risks and benefits, especially if they're not accustomed to the profile of a real estate fund investment. Uh, th that's a real education, uh, educational service that we help our friends in the advisory community and in the accounting community be able to enrich their relationship with their client. And we hope, in our case, by doing that, that we've, we've given them uh, a leg up uh, in terms of being competitive in their particular field and made them comfortable in working with us and, and um, putting us in a position to actually sit with their client and take them through a much deeper explanation 
of our particular investment opportunity. So to that end, we've, we've produced uh, two white papers so far, one for municipalities and one for the trusted advisor community that helps sort of guide them through this process. And, and those have been very well received. Oh, good, good. Uh, yeah, that's quite helpful. Any, any knowledge that you can pass on to uh, educate these Opportunity Zone participants or potential Opportunity Zone participants, uh, the more the better. So, but I want to turn our attention to your fund now, Bob. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what you're doing? Tell us a bit about the Niagara Falls project that Blue Cardinal is involved with. So, um, I I mentioned that um, you know there's 8,700 plus opportunity zones around the country, and one of the first challenges, one of the first practical issues, is finding the right market where there is a uh, real estate-based profit-making opportunity that can now be enhanced by this this opportunity zone uh, benefit, and so that analysis is really looking for the sort of the shape that doesn't fit with all the others. What what's the outlier? What's the the um, the community that has a little bit of a different profile from all of the rest? So one thing that you know I. I hear from folks all the time is, well, that kind of leads you to these places on the map where we question whether or not this really should be an opportunity zone. It's already had a resurgence. It's already beginning to thrive and show some vibrancy. And yet uh, somehow it was identified as an opportunity zone. And so I think the natural tendency, particularly among non-real estate people, is to look at that place and say, wow, this is the, a great opportunity because it's already more vibrant than the Opportunity Zone would suggest. However, I, I point that out as a real red flag because that vibrancy and that, that potential is frankly already baked into the price of the property. And so because Opportunity Zone process really starts with an acquisition transaction, I've basically committed to a, a return in the purchase of the property that may be even more difficult now to achieve because I've overpaid for property. And so, uh, again, I'm, I'm sort of coming back to this idea that what we're looking for is places on the map where there is um, a business case that's unique and different without having to pay for that in the price of the property. So Niagara Falls, um, in addition to the fact that it's 20 minutes from our home base here in Buffalo, is really one of those interesting places. The real estate in Niagara Falls um, has underperformed for a very long time as the city has been shrinking and changing from its historic energy and chemical heavy manufacturing history to a tourism-based uh, economy, the real estate really hasn't kept up and really hasn't performed up to the level of its potential. And you need not look farther than across the river to the Canadian side of Niagara Falls to see what that potential looks like. So... Uh, we were able to acquire a, a very substantial portion of a particular neighborhood 
that sits at an international crossing. Uh, it is connected to the commuter rail system of the greater Toronto area. And it is the neighborhood that has uh, recently uh, been identified as new park frontage for the expansion of the New York State Niagara Falls State Park. Uh, so our neighborhood where we're investing will have three miles of park frontage along the Niagara River and uh, uh, an old commercial corridor and an international crossing with a brand new intermodal train station. So we look at that and say, if you can acquire the property at the right price, the really fundamentals are in place to, to make a, a transformative shift in the value of these properties and really recognize and achieve their potential. Um, one of the things that is also extremely relevant is um, adjacency. And again, when you're looking at opportunity zones, you might want to look for uh, places where the real estate in, within the opportunity zone is underperformed and is affordable, but the real estate in the adjacent uh, census tract is high performing. Um, those uh, conditions don't often exist, partly because that the land value or land appreciation sort of trickles over the line and, and affects the opportunity zone. In our case, because of the international boundary, uh, we really sit on uh, a, a, an in, a, a remarkable inconsistency in that we have uh, the neighborhood in Niagara Falls, New York, which is very undervalued and priced low next to one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world and only could exist that way because of the border. So we're really next to vibrancy and thriving, uh, even though we're not paying for that in our acquisition price. And uh, it really gives us a, an economic base to grow the economy. Not to mention that Niagara Falls is still the ninth most visited place in the world every year. And so we have you know, somewhere around 20 million tourists coming that uh, provide an opportunity to really enhance the the revenue stream for these properties. Yeah, that's impressive, and that's uh, that's a pretty good investment case that you've made there for Niagara Falls. I'll, I'll be curious to see how that area transforms over the next uh, decade or so coming forward. Here, I, I, I know you uh, you recently hosted Bruce Katz from Accelerator for America there in, in Niagara Falls. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, his visit to your region and, and the, uh, the good things he had to say about what you're doing there? Sure. So um, we, uh, we had a, a very fortuitous meeting with Bruce Katz. Um, he was here in Buffalo to, uh, to speak at a conference about Opportunity Zone. And, and you may or may not know, Bruce Katz was part of the group well, that was the architect, uh, architects of the Buffalo Billion, which was a major infusion of capital to re renovate and, and trigger a resurgence of Buffalo that has largely been effective. So it was a bit of a homecoming for him. And, um, I, uh, and so our team participated in that conference, and there was a dinner the night before the conference, and it just so happened that um, I sat next to Bruce and Mayor Deister from the city of Niagara Falls, and we were able to have a really deeper conversation, much deeper conversation about uh, our project and how it worked and or how it's going to work. And 
And uh, we did not realize at the time we sat down that um, in preparation for the conference, uh, Bruce and a number of the other speakers had toured the opportunity zones around Buffalo, including our neighborhood in Niagara Falls. And when we uh, shared with him uh, a little bit of the description of the properties that we have acquired, he recognized it right away because it, it aligned to um, sort of a theme that he he had been developing for the conference. I, I think he called it street corners and and commercial corridors as a focus area for investment. And if you look at the map of of our properties, it's really uh, you know four um, consecutive blocks of the historic commercial corridor of the city of Niagara Falls, clustered around some significant intersections where we really can. Uh, create synergy, create critical mass that it would be hard to create with a single property, even if a very large property somewhere in the middle of the city. So he he had been developing this idea of of focusing on corridors and, and street corners as a strategy for sort of putting down um, a pocket of success in, in these blighted communities. And so when we told them where we were and and um, reminding him of some of the properties, uh, signature properties along that stretch. He knew it right away, and it really resonated with him. I think he uh, also commented um, on a, a, a lot of the work that we've done in the community to make sure that we are in alignment with what's happening in the city and, and in the neighborhood. Um, Again, the, you know, the working in a blighted community is a lot more challenging and requires a lot more consensus and coordination of resources. You know, we we acquired the these thirty nine properties, and it's very clear, uh, even after a few months of ownership, that real estate isn't the core problem in the neighborhood. There are all kinds of other problems from mental health and drug addiction, crime and safety. Uh, unemployment is certainly an issue under education. Um, the list goes on and on. Those are problems that a fund manager or um, a, a real estate developer even is ill-equipped to address. And so our strategy has been to build a coalition to work in coordination to attack those problems um, at, at the same time that the real estate redevelopment and, and uh, reimagining of the neighborhood is taking place. And I think that that was another of the items that, that struck a chord with him during his visit. And finally, I would say, um, and this kind of goes to maybe one of the more broad issues that still exist in the Opportunity Zone debate, and that is the community benefit and call it um, a, a tracking of the performance of the fund, not in terms of the return it generates, but in terms of how it impacts the community that it was intended to help. So again, it's an area where the regulation doesn't necessarily call for a particular solution, but it's an area where we feel that we have to be proactive. And so We've taken some really um, extraordinary steps, at least from fund management perspective, to ensure that we're 
not just causing change in the neighborhood, but bringing the neighborhood along uh, for the benefits of the change and making them participants rather than victims. And we have committed to um, uh, gathering data uh, from the beginning of the project all the way through its life cycle about the neighborhood, um, its financial health, its demographic makeup, and its prospects, and sharing that with the constituencies in a very open and transparent way. And again, I think that was something Bruce picked up on and commented on as as maybe um, a mechanism for uh, de-risking the project uh, from future regulation and maybe being a step ahead of future regulation on the topic of of disenfranch- disenfranchisement or, or gentrification, and rather than waiting for that to be legislated upon us. And then finally, um, the the day that uh, that uh, Bruce took his tour, uh, we had the opportunity to host uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, who awarded our project area ten million dollar downtown revitalization. A grant uh, to really support the public side, in particular the public infrastructure side of the project. Um, we have been saying right along that we can do a great job of, of renovating the buildings that we own and, and bringing them back to life and filling them with tenants. But if the municipality is not in a position to repair the streets or sidewalks or make sure the street lights work, or put enough police officers on the street, uh, all of those things that are needed to make a whole and, and effective ecosystem out of the neighborhood, our project's not going to achieve its potential and maybe not achieve its, its desired outcome. So uh, risk, uh, Bruce called that action by the state uh, an intervention of de-risking the project to make it... Um, uh, less risky from a public infrastructure point of view and and to make sure that the city of Niagara Falls had resources to complement what we were going to do on private real estate and really help uh, reassure investors that all of the parts could come together and this could be a successful uh, restart of a, a, a really historic neighborhood. So I, those are just a couple of the comments I remember from our visit with him but he was very engaged and and um it, he was a great visionary great speaker and it was great to have his his um contribution to to what we're thinking about and trying to do in niagara falls it sounds like it absolutely that's uh that's very good the the work that you're doing over there and to get uh, recognized by governor cuomo and receive an endorsement of some sort from from Bruce Katz. That's, that's terrific. And Bruce Katz, his name's come up on this podcast a few times now over the last few weeks. I'm going to have to get him on the show here pretty soon, I think. Well, I, I'd, I'd recommend it. He, he's, um, is very, very insightful and, and, uh, really a thought leader in, in financing in general, but opportunity zones as well. Yeah, absolutely. I know he's done a lot of thinking about this topic. Uh, well, Bob, this has been Great. Thanks for our conversation today. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to find those white papers that you've written and to learn more about you and Blue Cardinal Capital? 
Sure. We'd be happy to connect with your listeners uh, through our website at bluecardinalcapital.com or or connect with us on LinkedIn, and we'll be happy to share either of those white papers or both uh, with you and your listeners. And uh, you know, really happy to continue the dialogue uh, with municipalities or investment advisors who are looking to understand and and uh, whether they they're interested in Niagara Falls or not. Uh, we're happy to really engage with and talk about uh, the process of, of putting together a fund that that attracts investors. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Bob. And for our listeners out there today, as always, I'll have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zone database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast, and you'll find links to all of the resources that Bob and I discussed on today's show. Bob, again, thanks for joining us. This has been great. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.